KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Good evening, radioactive listeners and audience. Do not adjust your dials. You have been indigenously taken over here on Radioactive. It's me, Valine MC, from Living the Circle of Life right here on KRCL Sundays. And we are here on a Monday evening with you to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day with my co-host, Dave John. Dave, how's it going? Uh, pretty good. It's good to be back on air again. <laughs> so good, because here on Radioactive, it's a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. So we want to thank you for plugging into the community and with us tonight to celebrate and honor Indigenous Peoples Day. So, so tonight what we're looking at is we are actually going to have a couple interviews where we're going to be highlighting Native topics challenges and celebrating the culture because that's what it's all about and in the studio with us besides my co-host Dave John we have Eric Watchman of Scout Society that's going to be playing us in for throughout the show actually and we're going to be interviewing a candidate that's running for the Utah State House of Representatives District 69 Davina Smith and then after that we're going to be speaking with NARF the Native American Rights Fund Act, who is acting on behalf of or working with and advocating for ICWA, which is also known as the Indian Child Welfare Act. So we hope you stay with us and stay tuned. So, Eric, how's it going over there? How, how's it treating you? I know you're really like Eric does a little bit of everything. He kind of remi- reminds me of Dave John, <laughs> knows lots of people in the community, super involved. And I actually know Eric because we work together at the American Indian Student Leadership Club at Salt Lake Community College. But you're not here tonight for that. You're here because you are going to be singing and drumming in for us with the show, throughout the show. Yeah, that's right. We're uh, thankful and uh, glad we could be here to share our songs. And um, yeah, just truly grateful. And it's an honor to be here. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself, tribal affiliation, and a little bit about your drum group, please? Yeah, so once again, my name is Eric Watchman, and I'm a Navajo. Both of my parents are from Shiprock, New Mexico, and um, I was born and raised here in Salt Lake City. Uh, Currently, I'm attending Salt Lake Community College, uh, working on my uh, generals at the moment. But I wish um, later on, eventually, I want to be a pediatrician. That's what the uh, education goal is. (laughs) But... um, yeah, and uh, as for the drum group tonight, um, we're just a couple of singers who get together at powwows to, you know, do what we love to do, which is sing um, and share our, our music with the the people. And so, if for those of you who've attended powwows here in the Salt Lake Valley, if Eric's voice sounds familiar to you, it's because he is a very popular MC for a lot of our powwows. Most recently for the Pandos powwow, is that right, Dave John? Yeah, we had uh, Eric as MC ever since the first annual. Uh, I seen Eric at you know other little functions like with little feathers and stuff like that, and 
So when uh, we were looking for an MC, yeah, he was my first choice because I knew he could carry the show pretty good. And that first year, we had a lot of fires, but man, I mean, he he saved the show. <laughs> <laughs> Made it look seamless, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I've also had the pleasure of working with Eric and the powwow for the Slick powwow um, that was back in spring of this year, and you're planning another one. Yeah, it's in the works. We're uh, just trying to work with the school with what we can. And uh, yeah, right right now it's just the planning process, but um, we're hoping to make a big announcement soon. Exciting. And we, we want to thank you for being here. And we're going to go ahead and let Eric get set up. Um, him and his, his drumming partner. Oh, Pete. also Eric. Um, uh, so what the first song, what would it be like a Southern or Northern style? Uh, we're going to be doing a northern style um, flag song. It's a pretty well-known song throughout the Powell country, and yeah, it's a northern style. All right. Sounds good. And so Eric is going to be performing with your co-drummer, and that's PJ Yonggi. Mm-hmm. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> and he is Pacific Islander, actually. But if, like I said, it's Indigenous Peoples Day. We celebrate all that are Indigenous, not just Native American, because there is solidarity among us. And we're going to let Eric go get set up. And we want to thank you for being here. And thank you for honoring us with your songs. Yeah, we're thank, so excited. Thank you. And just talking a little bit, Dave, before we bring Davina our first guest on, it's Indigenous Peoples Day, and that happens here in Utah, well, actually nationwide, on what's formerly known as Columbus Day. Uh, I thought it was the guy who got lost. Yeah. <laughs> they never actually stepped foot <laughs> on, yeah, and, on Turtle Island. And what's nice, too, is um, the way we Utah or Salt Lake was able to celebrate Indigenous People Day was a big thanks to Moroni Benali because, yeah, he did a lot of legwork and presented to the council. And, yeah, so we were able to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. So, yeah, big shout-out to Moroni. And then also in the idea of Indigenous Peoples Day globally – was sparked off by the United Nations Conference in the late 1970s, which was also a big part of the AIM movement, the American Indian movement. There was a lot of revolution going on then. And then it slowly started to pick up. And here in America, um, it was in South Dakota, where that was actually the first state to officially recognize the day in 1989. And now here we are present day in Utah. And it's really gaining momentum, don't you think, Dave? Yeah, because it's good to see it go all through Turtle Island because, you know, it's we need to correct this so-called history that everybody's being taught is because, you know, a lot of it are lies. I mean, when you talk to elders, that's what I liked about when in my travels, I would talk to different areas or elders in different areas and their stories. I mean, they were always good. And I mean, it's always good to hear the true history of Turtle Island. Absolutely. Word. <laughs> and so now what we're going to do is we're going to go out and we're going to turn it over to our drum group that's honoring us here. And as you said, Dave, they're doing a flag song for us. Yeah, northern okay. style. Northern style. And here they go.
And you just heard from Scout Society drum group Northern Style with the opening song, a flag song. And we want to thank them so much. And stay tuned with us because you're going to be hearing them throughout the show. And here on KRCL and Radioactive, we want to take the time for this this uh, show to really acknowledge that KRCL our studio is located on the Native American shared territory of the Goshut, Navajo, or Diné, Paiute, Shoshone, and the Ute people. We honor the original ancestors of this land and also offer respect to other tribal communities that are on this land. We acknowledge the history to cultivate respect and for and advocate with indigenous communities, members, citizens that are still connected to this land. And so, Dave, with that, we offer a big thanks, Koyana and Gunish Chish, with the land acknowledgement. How important is this? What's the reason? We hear a lot about it. What's the reason for this land acknowledgement? Well, one good thing about it was when uh, other uh, tribes would go through other, you know, native uh, indigenous territories, it was always good to show respect. You know, so that way it would avoid conflict, wars, even though there were tribes that always had conflict, you know, rivals, you know. uh, But it was always good to know that they did show respect when entering their uh, different territory. And it's the same thing here, too. You know, it's just to remember the stewards of this land, you know, because, yeah, all natives were put to wherever they were through their creator, you know, because they entrusted him to take care of the land. That's why all these uh, tribes know how to survive where they're at. Absolutely. And I add to that, every time I do a land acknowledgement, and I don't know if you get this, I always get goosebumps. And I was taught to believe that, that the ancestors of this land, the keepers of this land, they hear us. It's like an offering, almost like a prayer or an acknowledgement, which it is, and they hear it, and I always get the goosebumps, and for me, that's just validation, all right? Keep going. You're doing the right thing. (laughs) (laughs) But now switching over, we actually, we have a guest on today for this first half of the show. Later on, we're going to be talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act, Um, but first, before we get to that, we have Davina Smith. And she's a candidate that's running for the U.S. State House of Representatives, District 69. And so Dave, Dave's going to be having a conversation. We, we talk about that. When Dave ha- does his interviews, it's like a conversation. And so we're so excited to see what he's going to get into with Davina and what she has going on. And they're going to be discussing other indigenous candidates that are running and how we can support them and issues that are on the table. Yeah, yeah. Um it, I'm glad Devine will be able to join us today. Uh, I've helped her out with different things. Uh, she was with Salt Lake Air Protectors, Utah, Dene Bikay. Uh She also had a spiritual run, too, from Bears Ears all the way here to Salt Lake City. And, yeah, I will always watch her. There, every time it seemed like she had it, I had something that came up. <laughs> so. so she literally, like, she doesn't just talk the talk. She oh. runs the talk. She oh, walks yeah. the walk. She, she gets into <laughs> she it. She runs the run. Uh, she was looking after Bears Ears, uh, Staircase Monument. And, yeah, finally, one on one of her runs, finally actually got to cook breakfast for her. <laughs> so, but, yeah, it's good to, um, you know, I mean, she's, she's a powerful woman, you know, a lot of respect to her because, I mean, just just for what she does for the community. And now she's down south, so she's helping out, 
you know, the Dene Nation down in the southeastern part of Utah. And Davina, we want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. Davina is joining us through Zoom. Davina, how are you? Great. First of all, thank you for manifesting U.S. I'm actually running for Utah State House of Representatives, but hey, that is something in the future to look up. Oh, uh, maybe the ancestors were whispering that in my ear. So, <laughs> hint, hint, Davina. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is not the first. I've been introduced as as running for Congress. So, uh, hey, you know, sky's the limit with me. As Dave says, I'm always looking forward to what we can do to better our uh, Native communities. Well, yeah, when um, we were talking, too, um, because when we were discussing of what, you know, we wanted to talk about on this show for Radioactive, you know, uh, I figured, you know, it'd be nice to get, like, uh, people aware of how important it is to start having indigenous, you know, people in politics. I mean, because, you know, we've always been at the door, but we never had a seat at the table. But now, you know, with all these indigenous women, you know, men getting into office, it's nice to kind of have a seat at the table now. Uh, can you kind of uh, kind of let the listeners know how important it is to get this type of, you know, us at the table? Right, sure. Um, well, first of all, I just want to introduce myself. Um, um, Shea Davina Smith, and she had to cut you in the couple of homes, but she's cheating, but I need to say not Kaden and Dishanella. My name is Davina Smith. I'm from originally from Lima Valley, Utah, currently reside in Blanding, Utah. Um, and also right now, as I, um, due to that, I'm down south. I'm actually further down south. I'm in Albuquerque. So I'd like to acknowledge that this is, you know, this meeting that I'm uh, in is being held on the traditional lands of the Pueblo people and all other indigenous people. And that um, I would like to pay my respect to the elders, both uh, past and present. So, um but yes, and also happy Indigenous Day. I'm, of course, for us, it's all every day, you know, every day. So a um, seat at the table, you know, it, it when I was asked, and it has been a, several times, uh, I lived a lot of my professional life up in Salt Lake City. And um, there were moments when becoming involved with the community that I've been asked if I would be interested in running for council um or other political positions but at that time i just didn't feel it, I, I was ready uh, i knew it had to deal with something for me going back home and I, but i just knew i wasn't it what the time was not yet and as dave mentioned you know all these um the prayer working on prayer run working with utah dinebikea salt lake air protectors it was always um being involved in advocating, supporting, bringing awareness to injustices that are happening to our native brothers and sisters in the state of Utah. Um, one other was, you know, not knowing how many tribes were in Utah. So I had the honor of working with uh, KUED PBS on three documentary films. For the one was uh, We Shall Remain, um, that focused on the tribes in Utah. My focus is specifically with the Diné people and developing a curriculum and all these experiences and um, networks and connections 
when I was ready to go back home, um, it was also because I was offered an amazing job to work on another land area that we are seeking protection. So that's one of the reasons why I'm down here in um, Albuquerque to to connect with Pueblo tribes. But and that was then where actually a year ago this month, I got a call and I was driving to um, Grand Staircase because I'm a board member with Grand Staircase Partners. Um, I was asked if I knew anyone that would be interested in running for office for several positions. And I said, you know, I'll think about it and see if I can think of some, some people that um, I could suggest. And then I was asked, well, you know, I was told that maybe you might be interested. And I was kind of chuckling like, ah, yeah, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I was like, uh, but as I had my board meeting that weekend, and also I was a guest speaker for a women's outdoor industry that had a retreat there in Escalante. I was sitting there listening to all these amazing women. And I swear, if I probably felt like my grandmother, you know, knocked me on the side of my head and it's like, what are you waiting for? And that's when I'm like, what am I waiting for? I think this is right now is the time. The time is now. So I called back and I said, you know what? What positions are open? <laughs> I was like, well, you can run for, you know, county clerk and auditor. It's like, no. Um, well, you can run against the, um, you know, Commissioner Willie Gray eyes. I'm like, ooh, no. And then it's like, well, there's also Utah State House of Representative. I'm like, okay, let's do that. We'll go for that. Yeah, and that's where so, we kind of need it too because, yeah, the ones they have in there now, it's like, hmm. <laughs> right, absolutely. It's, it's something that is really eye-opening to experience with um, running against my opponent. I mean, already knowing the history of that background. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one thing you talked about, too, it was nice to see Willie Gray Eyes and uh, what was a Mark Maraboy uh, get into that those two spots out of three. And, and when, when that happened, it was like, yeah, it, it's about time. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, even, I mean, as we are invited to a forum and I, I sit beside Willie and Kenneth, it gives me goosebumps because I'm like, I'm literally here. And then also in San Juan County, we have a Deneb person running for county sheriff. We have another Deneb person or out nuts, all white person. Then we have another Deneb man running for Garrett Holly, who's running for county clerk and auditor. And then we have a young Deneb woman who's running for school board in the San Juan school district. So this is, I mean, to see this and be a part of this is just an amazing experience. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, and also there is rumors of uh, certain people trying to switch back the lines to favor them. Um, is there any updates on that? Um, as of right now, I have not heard anything. I mean, I, I really just have been focusing um, on my campaign because this, the district, the new district that I'm running in 69 is quite massive. Um, we uh, due to the changes of the, the the congressional map, you know, I 
now have all of Grand County. Uh, that was once broken up to three districts. So I have all of Grand County. I have San Juan County. I have Wayne, Garfield, parts of Emory, and Kane County. So this district is literally half of the state of Utah. And the size is equivalent to the state of West Virginia. So I literally have been out in you know every county engaging as much as i can oh yeah because it sounds like in the future when they do a land acknowledgement uh, i think your name might pop up with all the other tribes (laughs) (laughs) oh goodness you know um i i have to say it's been quite an amazing journey so far um learning a lot also in terms of the political um, arena um, on what um, the discussions I've been having with um, community members. Um, And that is really across the board, whether Republican, Democrat, independent issues that are so important and worrisome and almost to a point of some losing hope is, you know, affordable housing, quality of education, um, and back home, water, running water, roads, um, the list goes on and on and on. And there are some nights I toss and turn and, you know, I worry about that for everyone and the, the support that needs to happen and how, I mean, I could just go on on and on about knowing these issues far too long. And again, that's why I, I stepped up and said, no more. I want to, I want to see changes happen. Okay. And uh, any last thoughts um, before we tie this up? And Um, I just, you know, I just, like I mentioned, I going home, you know, I hope that one day, you know, our younger generation, our younger people want to return back to our native land. Um, And so that is something that I strive so much um, in my campaign. And I know my kids live up there in Salt Lake and I would love for them to come home, but I want to make sure that they come home to a place that, you know, they, they feel proud to come home. Um, there's a lot of work happening, um, but most importantly, also voting. I'm seeing we have a young, a lot of young um, people across this district and even back home on the reservations, like your vote, it really does matter. I have been hearing younger people saying, well, it doesn't, it wouldn't, like, what's the point of it? I'm like, it really does have a point. The things that you bring up, the issues that you are so worried about, this is where we can make change. You know, I'm not going in with my agenda. I just, I can't work that way. We are all in this together. I'm about unity. And Dave, you know, our prayer runs, it's, it's been either 10,000 allies or it's our unity prayer run. That's where I come in, in that mindset is it's, we all do this together. We all work together. And so with that being said, you know, it's so important to get out there and vote. Yeah, and one example, too, I think you can bring up, too, is if our vote didn't count, you know, Willie won't be in office, you know, Mary Bo won't be in office. So I think that's a good example to bring out to them. Yes, that's what our votes do. Absolutely. They have been so instrumental in some creating some changes because when they're sitting there 
there at a, the commissioner meetings and and they have they can stay sit there and vote i mean it's it really is it's making impacts and um yeah that i just can't express how much we need everyone to get out there and vote okay well thanks for joining us on krcl radioactive and thanks again and before we let you go, Davina, I just want to ask one question. Where can our listeners find you? Do you have social media or website? Yes. Um, go If you go to Davina4UT.com, um, you can see my messages, my platform. But also we have all our social media links on, on there. Um, and also, I was just informed by my campaign manager, Molly, um, that we, we have now our campaign ad. So whether that's on, I think it's all on Dish Network, so, but CNN, local. So, yeah, I'm not playing around. So, you, you know, anywhere and everywhere you can find me. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us and for all your information and good luck. Well, I appreciate this. And you both are doing amazing work as well. Thank you. Crossroads Urban Center and the Coalition of Religious Communities is collecting diapers sizes 4, 5, and 6 Davina, during the month so of October to donate here. to organizations that okay? serve homeless families. Thank For you. more you details, do. visit crossroadsurbancenter.org C-O-R-C. Volunteer during your favorite show or anytime. Go to krcl.org for more information and to sign up. See you soon. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru, a community partner of YWCA Utah and the Stand Against Racism Challenge. Mark Miller Subaru loves diversity. Learn more at ywcautah.org and markmillersubaru.com. And you are listening to the Indigenous Takeover of Radioactive tonight for Indigenous Peoples Day. And it's me, Valiant MC, with my co-host, Dave John. And we are going to have a Scout Society and Northern Style Drum Group play another song for us. So have a listen and stay with us. We have interviews with the Native American Rights Fund coming up next.
And that was our in-house drum group. No, I jokes. That's <laughs> our Scout Society Northern Style drum group here from the Salt Lake Valley. And, and that was an intertribal song that they played for us. And they've been playing throughout the show, and they're going to close out the show, so make sure you stay with us. They're doing an excellent job and super honored. And coming up next, what we actually have is the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's also known as ICWA, and it's going to be challenged by the Brackeens versus Hallen case, and it's going to be argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in November of this year. I had the chance to actually sit down with Dan Lebrantz, Beth Wright of the Native American Rights Fund, and then John Mejia, the legal director at ACLU Utah, to discuss the significance of this case, what it means, and to provide a deeper understanding of what exactly is at stake this November with the Child Welfare Act, Native Amer- or sorry, Indian Child Welfare Act. Today we're going to be talking about the Indian Child Welfare Act that is going to be presented before the U.S. Supreme Court in November. And we have the Native American Rights Fund organization with us, and we have Dan Leverance along with Beth Wright joining us today. Welcome to both of you, and thank you so much for being with us. Dan, could you please introduce yourself and what you do with the Native American Rights Fund? Sure. My name is Dan Leverance, and I'm a member of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. I spent five years with the Native American Rights Fund in the Washington, D.C. office, where two of the things that were in my portfolio were um, Indian Child Welfare Act work and helping to coordinate Supreme Court work on behalf of tribes. And so with this Indian Child Welfare Act case at the Supreme Court, that kind of fell into both parts of my everyday duties. Now, I've recently left NARF to teach at the University of North Dakota, but I continue to work with NARF on this very important case. And then Beth, could you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Yeah, thank you. My name is Beth Wright, and I'm a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. I'm from the Pueblos of Taos and Laguna. And I've been with NARF for about six months, so I'm a newer attorney and newer to NARF. Um, but I work on our ICWA work, and I lead our uh, boarding school initiatives as well. We're going to kind of dig right in here. And first, I think we need a little bit of a clearer understanding for those who may not know. Beth, if you could, what is some of the history and treatment of Native American and Alaska Native youth that so much so that we had to enact ICWA. I think ICWA was really a response to a lot of the assimilation policies that we have seen put forth by the United States government and by the states. We know a lot now about the boarding school policies that were um, enacted by the United States government and, and individual states and how those contributed to the widespread removal of Native children from their families. And the boarding school era really led to modern day assimilation policies like the widespread removal of Native children from their families in child custody proceedings. And I think it's it's those assimilation policies of the past and recent past and present that have really led to why we need um, federal laws like ICWA. Dan, if you could explain to us, what is the Indian Child Welfare Act and when was it enacted? Sure. The Indian Child Welfare Act was enacted in 1978 in response to 
Congress finding that Indian children were being removed from their homes at an alarming rate over the course of several years, because this isn't something Congress did on a whim. They spent years considering and refining this legislation. Um, they determined that more than a quarter, sometimes uh, a third of all Indian children were being removed from their homes, that they were frequently being placed deliberately with non-Indian families, that there was a deliberate attempt to separate them from Indian families and from tribes, that they often were not getting due process. Parents would go to the store and come home and find their children gone. There was no court hearing. It was all just done you know, very secretly and without notifying tribes and often without even notifying the parents. Can you explain a little bit about what is this case on both sides of it and what's being argued? Kind of setting the framework here for this Supreme Court case that's going to be um, argued in November over ICWA, um, also known as the Indian Child Welfare Act. At the heart of this case are three non-Indian adoptive, uh, potential adoptive families. The Brackeens were foster parents to an Indian child and they wanted to adopt him. Um, when the courts in Texas said, we need to follow the Indian Child Welfare Act, and there is a Navajo family that we can place this child with, the child was uh, a Navajo tribal member, they sued because they felt like they were being discriminated against, that this was racial discrimination. So that's one of their big claims, that the Indian Child Welfare Act operates on the basis of race and, and discriminated against them. Um, they actually have completed their adoption. The, the Navajo family pulled out. They have adopted that child, but they've kept this lawsuit going because uh, they want to show that ICWA discriminates on the basis of race. Now, it doesn't. Let's be clear. The U.S. Constitution itself recognizes that Indians are a slightly separate category. It's not to say that they're not a racial category. If an employer, say, says they're not going to hire Indians, that's racial discrimination. But when Congress makes a treaty with Indians, with an Indian tribe, we don't make treaties with a race of people. We make treaties with a political entity, a, a country, a nation, a sovereign. When Congress enacts statutes that carry out those treaties, even when those statutes create special uh, rights for the Indians who are the subject of them, that's not racial action. That's action based on this political relationship between the Indian tribe and the United States and between the Indian tribe and its member. And the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized this for years, that that, that relationship is a political relationship. The Brackeens and their allies, the other adoptive families in the state of Texas, are trying to get the Supreme Court to change the way it views that relationship. They want it viewed as a racial relationship because they feel like it's a racial relationship. Where that comes from, I think, is simply the, the Brackeens themselves. There was a New York Times story about this case a couple of years ago. And in that story, um, Mrs. Brackeen said that she, they're also trying to adopt that boy's younger sister now. And part of her rationale was he deserves to have a sibling who looks like him. Now, who's racializing the question? Congress, which is operating on its 200-year basis of dealing with tribes as political sovereigns, 
or the family who, who has adopted a kid who does not look like them and now wants to adopt another so that the kid has someone who looks like him. And I, I hate to say that. I, I, I have no doubt that the Brackeens love that child, love both children. But for them to try and tear down the entire system because they feel like they've been put out just isn't fair to anybody. And thank you for that, Dan, because when you hear the, the foster parents or adoptive parents going up against these nations, and as you said, there's these political understandings and agreements, it, um, it just seems pretty black and white, but it's not. It's gotten this far. It's going to the Supreme Court. And with that, how important it is to have the state's support, such as the state of Utah, it's it's really important in this case because we don't all just have this um, argument about whether ICWA is or is not racial. There is another aspect of this case where the state's participation is particularly important, and that is the other side is arguing that the Indian Child Welfare Act actually tramples on the rights of states, that it's Congress kind of wrongly imposing itself in a traditional state function. Um, and the state of Texas is a plaintiff in this state, and that argument probably wouldn't get a lot of traction if it wasn't a state that's making that argument. Individuals saying you're, you're trampling on my states don't usually get a lot of traction, but a state saying, say, hey, I, I, I have a role in this federal system that our, our constitutional founders created and you're overstepping your lines and stepping into my territory, well, the judiciary sits up and takes note. So that's what Texas's role is, is to sort of bring that state's argument in. The thing is, Texas is wrong on, on virtually every count here. Number one, they wanna portray this like it's a family law case. And typically the states do have a central role in things like inheritance and um, marriage and divorce and those sorts of things that are standard family law. But the child welfare system is a different system than the family law system. And the child welfare system has always been supported by federal funds and federal requirements. And the Indian Child Welfare Act operates in that child welfare system. It's not just about how families operate. It has limits on how you can dissolve a family, right? Because part of this law is about terminating parental rights and how you reform families. And those are a different area of law that has always had a strong federal focus, particularly when Indians are involved. Congress has been legislating on behalf of Indian children almost since the beginning of the Republic. Some of this country's earliest treaties made specific provisions for the children of the tribes the United States was enacting the treaty with. Some of Congress's earliest statutes were providing funds for the education and care of Indian children, including the operation of Indian orphanages for the care of Indian children who no longer had parents, which again is, is kind of what we're dealing with here in the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's why we see 23 states on our side compared to just the one state. I guess there are two states that are uh, that have joined Texas as amicus. They're not parties, but 
the best count is the other side has three states and we have 23. The other state, you know, the other side has only Republican states um, who are adopting a very sort of politicized view of the law. And our state has an incredible mix of some of the reddest and some of the bluest states in the country. It's not often that you see Utah and California saying, we agree on this prospect of law, but that's what we have here. We have extremely red states like Utah and South Dakota joining with extremely blue states like California and Washington because they know that the Indian Child Welfare Act serves Indian children's best interests. And what are the three other states that are in this case? So Texas is a party to the case. There is an amicus brief that's been filed in support of Texas by Ohio and Oklahoma. I, I do want to take a minute to note that Oklahoma's legislature has actually adopted most of ICWA into their own state law. And at lower court, in lower court proceedings, Oklahoma was on our side. Um, but in the interim, Oklahoma lost a Supreme Court case that was very important to them. And now they've come in on the non-Indian side of this case. Their attorney general in doing so seems to be uh, kind of flying in the face of the legislature, which again has adopted much of the Indian Child Welfare Act into their own state law. Yeah, that is uh, very surprising, kind of raises eyebrows when you say Oklahoma, because you would think it would be the opposite. In that situation with uh, so many native tribes and nations being in the state of Oklahoma, and as you said, they have adopted so much of ICWA into their own legislation. So that's curious and interesting. And can you speak, Beth, to uh, organizations um, and support systems that have stemmed from uh, the founding of ICWA? I think I might have to pass this one to Dan, I think. Sure. So, Dan, could you please uh, kind of paint us a picture of what organizations and um, support systems have been have stemmed from ICWA for Native American and Alaska Native youth? I think the biggest is the way that the Indian Child Welfare Act has helped to strengthen tribes themselves. You know, Congress, in passing that law, helped tribes build the institutions to have their own uh, child welfare agencies, the, the equivalent of the state agencies, and to work closely with the states. And that's another reason so many states came in on our side in this, is that the Indian Child Welfare Act really does an amazing job of balancing federal, state, and tribal interests and of promoting federal, state, and tribal coordination. When a state child welfare agency finds themselves in the care of a native child, they often are reaching out to the tribe to help find placements, to help find services, to help serve that child. And we all know that state agencies are, are put upon. They don't have the funding to do all of the work they need in this arena. And so tribes are able to step in and help them do that critical work, taking some cases off of their caseload and, and making it easier to resolve the cases that they keep. With this case being argued before Supreme Court with the Brackeen versus Howland case that's going to be heard in November of this year, some people would say, well, if a Native family is not available for a Native child and they go to a non-Native family and it's a loving home, can't we just let it be that and just let it be what it is? Or does this open the door to something bigger? 
Actually, Valine, that happens all the time. And there's a brief on our side in this case from some non-Indian parents who adopted an Indian child. When there isn't a placement available that's a, a family placement or a tribal placement or an Indian placement, non-Indians adopt Indian children all the time. ICWA is there to make sure that we consider those other placements first, but it provides no barrier to, um, to placing a child in a loving home. Now, that's not exactly what's happened in this case, right? The, the Brackeens were foster parents and you know we have to applaud foster parents. They play an incredible role in the system we have set up and helping find kids temporary homes until we can find them permanents. But it has always been the case that foster families are temporary families. They do not get you know first dibs on adopting a child. And, and that's often written into the agreement that they make with the state. Remember, foster families are, are in contractual agreements with the state that sets up their foster system. And the Supreme Court has said that foster parents don't have some special right of first refusal to the adoptive children. So the, the, the child welfare system generally, and the Indian Child Welfare Act specifically, look at the foster care system and the adoption system as separate systems. And they say, we have to follow these procedures at every step of the way. And so the fact that a foster family wants to adopt doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best option to adopt. Now, sometimes they are. And sometimes a non-native foster family adopts an Indian child that they have fostered but it's, it's not a guarantee. And they're trying to treat it like it's a guarantee. They're saying that, that they should have some sort of right of first refusal. And they just don't. They don't under the contract they signed with the state of Texas, and they don't under the, the law that the Supreme Court has decided for decades. And it sounds like what you're saying is it's not about the family. It's about the child and what is best for the child. At, at the adoption stage, it is absolutely about what is best for the child. And, and the best interests of the child standard is what guided Congress when it created ICWA and what guides decisions under ICWA. ICWA just says that we can't decide the child's best interest based on outmoded views of the ways that families should act that we can't hold a family's poverty against them and say the child would be better off in a rich family than a poor family. In fact, the last time the Indian Child Welfare Act was at the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Scalia himself said this, that we don't take a child away from one family because we think they'd be better off with another. Child stays with their family unless that's just not possible. Now, Justice Scalia was not always a friend to Indian tribes, but he knew that the Indian Child Welfare Act is best practice when it comes to child placement. And that's a very, very powerful note there. And can you explain to us, I wanna ask this question to you, what are the ramifications for U.S. Indigenous youth and the programs that support them if the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't defend ICWA? What does that look like? It's hard to say because there are so many different constitutional issues in this case. The court 
depending on what reason it finds for saying ICWA is unconstitutional, the outcomes might be very different. But let's take that question of race that we spoke about earlier. If the Supreme Court holds that the Indian Child Welfare Act operates on the basis of race, then Congress probably can't have this law. It, it probably falls by the wayside. And all these protections for native families and native children fall by the wayside with it. That probably also prevents those states who have enacted parts of ICWA into their own state law because states can't dis discriminate on the basis of race either. But it actually goes a lot farther than that, Felina, because the attorneys who represent the Brackeens in this case have been trying to apply this racial theory in other areas as well. They right now are in a lawsuit in Washington state trying to say that the state can't sign gaming compacts with tribes because that is racial discrimination. And in fact, in the long history of Indian relations in this country, almost everyone who has tried to undermine tribal power and tribal rights has done so by invoking this racial argument, by saying that treaty hunting rights, tribal uh, governance, that all of that is based on race and that we should all just be treated equally. So this case is part of a long-standing effort, not just to undermine the protections for Indian children, but to undermine tribes as governments and Indian tribes and communities as, as self-governing societies. That's what's at stake, everything. Everything is at stake. And that is very, very um, impactful and poignant what the Native American Rights Fund organization's role is in ICWA and in general in serving the Native population. We do a number of things. Um, and sometimes it's litigation like this where we are either directly representing someone or we are assisting the lawyers and the tribes who are in the litigation. In this case, we're, we're in the assisting role. We're helping to coordinate the work among all of these various parties that are pro-ICWA. But aside from this, the Native American Rights Fund acts as a resource for people who are doing Indian Child Welfare Act work. Um, we often update professionals on developments in the law and help them navigate those new developments. We work with tribes to help them strengthen their capacity uh, and to improve their legal systems so that they can better handle child welfare cases. Um, and one of the reasons we're so excited to have brought Beth on board is that I think she's gonna be in a position to expand some of this work. And I don't even know if we know yet what new directions that's going to be going in. Um, but uh, it, it is going to continue to be a big part of what the Native American Rights Fund does throughout our reach. And how can listeners find more information on NARF or Native American Rights Fund? Our website is www.narf.org. And to see specifically some of the work we're doing in the Indian Child Welfare Act arena, it is ICWA, icwa.narf.org. Um, and the Indian Child Welfare Act often works with other Native organizations to do this work. We are partnering with the Association on American Indian Affairs, which was 
critical to getting ICWA enacted in the first place. They did some of the original research that Congress relied on with the National Congress of American Indians, which is a broad intertribal organization, and with the National Indian Child Welfare Association, which exists specifically to help tribes and states in this important area of child welfare. Together, we make up the Protect ICWA campaign, and we're here to make sure that ICWA does as much good in the next 40 years as it's done in the last 40 years. I also just want to note that uh, listeners can follow Protect ICWA on Instagram and Twitter if they want to see updates on the case and kind of see how the case is moving along. And so for our listeners, for those who are Native and non-Native, how can people get involved? Because sometimes this can feel so overwhelming. Like, let's just leave it to all those that are in legislation, all the attorneys. They know what they're talking about. We don't know what we can do. How do you make this so this is something that we can all be a part of? You know, the the easiest thing is is talk to your friends. You know, lots of people don't understand the Indian Child Welfare Act, and that's fair. It's complicated. Not all of us go to law school, and as the Texas Attorney General's briefs to the Supreme Court show, some people who go to law school don't understand the Indian Child Welfare Act either. Um, but, but when someone tells you that the Indian Child Welfare Act prevents non-Indians from adopting children, gently correct them. Say, no, actually there are non-Indian parents who support the Indian Child Welfare Act. When someone tells you that the Indian Child Welfare Act prevents Indian children from finding loving homes, say no, the whole child welfare um, establishment, the people who work on this on a daily basis, they all support the Indian Child Welfare Act because it does achieve best interests and best results. The medical establishment, people who, who deal with child health know that the Indian Child Welfare Act promotes child health. And so just talk to your friends, talk to your neighbors, if you hear misinformation, gently correct it and don't judge the people who, who may have heard somewhere that it works one way or another. Just explain to them that they're wrong and, and point them to all of these briefs to the Supreme Court showing them why ICWA is best for Indian children. All right, and continuing the conversation of what's supporting the Indian Child Welfare Act, we have yep. John Mejia of the American Civil Liberties Union joining us today. And John, could you introduce yourself to our Living the Circle of Life listeners as well as Radioactive? Yes, I'm John Mejia. I'm the legal director of the ACLU of Utah. Uh, I've been legal director for about 10 years and uh, very proud to be doing this kind of work. Wonderful. And diving right into it, we were speaking with the Native American Rights Fund, also known as NARF, and they gave us the background about ICWA. And they also were talking about the various briefs that have been filed in support of ICWA and defending it before the U.S. Supreme Court this November. And so I would love to hear from your organization based here in Utah, why is ICWA important and why have you all joined together with ACLU to support the Indian Child Welfare Act? So we, uh, the ACLU of Utah, along with 14 other affiliates in our national office, have filed uh, an amicus brief, that's a friend of the court brief, in support of uh, the constitutionality of uh, ICWA. And 
you know, that's important because I think that it's very powerful for the court to see how many um, tribal nations, how many um, child welfare. And that was John Mejia, the legal director at ACLU, as well as Dan Leverance and Beth Wright of the Native American Rights Fund, speaking about the Indian Child Welfare Supreme Court case happening this November. And as we wrap up the show here in, on Radioactive with my co-host, Dave John. Dave, what do we have? Um, we're going to have uh, Scout Society uh, close the show with uh, a song, um, Late late the, to the late Bob Taylor Sr. Um, song. That was Scout Society, Northern Style Drum Singers, who played for us, and we want to thank them and all of our guests today. I'm Valiant MC, and with my co-host Dave John of Living the Circle of Life. And please join us every Sunday from 7 to 10. And we want to say Koyana for all of our guests and for being with us today on this Indigenous Peoples Day. And we now join Democracy Now! already in progress right here on KRCL's 90.9.